Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. As you're making your way there, I'll underscore the announcement that you're invited to a movie tonight at our Lobo campus downtown where we show a film. It's Cinema Sunday. It's a great film that has a really good family and gospel message tied to it with class A actors in it. And um, we think it's great that you just bring your friends, bring your family, bring your kids. I wouldn't bring your pets, leave those at home. But come out and enjoy a movie free of charge. Bring somebody who doesn't know the Lord but would go to an event like this. They might not go to um, churchy events, but they'll come to a movie theater and... um, Jesse Lusco is going to present a short gospel message afterward that will be right aimed at the heart. And it's going to be excellent. So we invite you out for that tonight, free of charge, at the Lobo Theater. John chapter 20, verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head, the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She... Supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that He had spoken these things to her. Would you pray with me? Lord, the text that we are considering is just so wonderful as we read, a woman who comes to the understanding that the one that she loved more than anyone else on this earth is now alive, when she had thought there was finality in his death. Many of us can relate to this story. Maybe not on the level of somebody that we thought was dead is now alive, but somebody who is brokenhearted and needs comfort who needs hope rekindled, who is in despair and sorrow. And I pray, Lord, that if that describes us, or if we know somebody who is there, that you'd help us to be raised to a higher level through the teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of the best advice I ever heard on dealing with people who are in grief is a simple statement that says, 
Walk softly around a broken heart. Walk softly around a broken heart. Broken-hearted people are fragile people. Broken-hearted people are emotionally distressed people. Broken-hearted people need hope, and hope is a process. We have a story about a woman who is living there. She's in sorrow. She's in deep distress, depression, you might even say. And Jesus comes along and through a simple and quick process brings her immense hope. There is a journey that a person takes from despair to hope. And somebody who's ever counseled grieving people knows that intuitively. And patiently will take the person from step to step to bring that person into hope. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and the stone had been rolled away. She thought somebody stole the body. She was wrong. There had been a resurrection. She's about to discover that her assumptions were wrong. The body hasn't been stolen. It hasn't been taken and placed somewhere else. But she's going to discover that. I have a story I want to read to you, supposedly a true story from Sarasota, Florida, based upon the police records. An elderly Florida lady did her shopping, and upon returning to her car, she found four males in the act of leaving with her vehicle. She dropped her shopping bags and drew her handgun proceeding to scream at the top of her lungs, I have a gun and I know how to use it. Get out of the car. Nice little old lady. (laughs) The four men didn't wait for a second threat. They got out and ran like mad. The lady, somewhat shaken, then proceeded to load her shopping bags into the back of the car and got into the driver's seat. She was so shaken that she couldn't get her key into the ignition. She tried and tried, and then she realized, why? (laughs) It was for the same reason she had wondered why there was a football, a frisbee, and two packs of beer in the front seat. (laughs) A few minutes later, she found her own car parked four or five spaces further down. She loaded her bags into the car and drove to the police station to report her mistake. The sergeant to whom she told the story couldn't stop laughing. He pointed to the end of the counter where four pale men were reporting a carjacking. Get this, by a mad elderly woman described as white, less than five feet tall, glasses, curly white hair, carrying a large handgun. No charges were filed. That is the best senior moment I've ever heard of right there. Oops, wrong car. Now that woman thought her car had been stolen. She was wrong. Mary Magdalene thought that her Lord had been stolen. She was wrong. Now, fortunately, the police chief and the four pale men 
dealt very tenderly and compassionately with this elderly woman with the handgun. And fortunately, Jesus Christ deals very lovingly, mercifully, compassionately with Mary Magdalene, who also was wrong. As we look at the text today, there are four principles I want you to see about handling people who are grieving or in sorrow or are distressed or are depressed, those who have suffered great loss. Four principles. The first principle is probably the most obvious, and that is crying is natural. Crying is natural. We find in verse 11 that Mary stood outside by the tomb. Here's the word weeping. It means to wail loudly. Not like sniffling a little bit, wiping a few tears. She's She lost it. Now let's go back in time just a little bit to the night before. I tend to think that Mary Magdalene didn't get much sleep the night before. She was tossing and turning and every little noise she heard woke her up and the visions of the crucifixion, the blood flowing down the face of Jesus, it, it shook her, it, it woke her up, it messed with her. And finally, she got up early and she went to the tomb. Chapter 20, verse 1, uses the term early in the morning. And that's a technical term I mentioned last week for the fourth watch of the night, somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., She gets up and goes. Sabbath is over. She couldn't leave on the Sabbath. You can't walk according to Jewish law more than two-thirds of a mile. That's over. Now she goes. She goes to the tomb. Jewish mourning lasts a period of one month, 30 days. That's the period they carve out to deal emotionally with the loss of a loved one, 30 days. The first seven days are the more intense. During the first seven days, the survivors, they don't bathe. They don't anoint themselves with oil or any product. They don't wear shoes. They don't engage in business or study. They basically look disheveled. That's their way of saying, I'm mourning. Somebody that I love has died. And the wailing is not contained. It's very loud and vociferous. There's the tearing of the garments to signify a broken or tearing heart. There's the sackcloth that is put on the body and ashes that are sprinkled on the head and over the sackcloth to say that this person is in deep mourning. Even Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, you know it well, there's a time to weep and there's a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn. And there's a time to dance. This is Mary's time to weep and to mourn. It's very natural. Now there's even a Jewish legend that says, I don't know if Mary Magdalene was into this, but she could have fallen into that superstition. Many Jewish people believed at that time that the spirit of the departed person actually hovered over the grave for three days seeking to re-enter the body. But that on the fourth day... Because decomposition has well set in that the spirit departs. There's no hope of returning. Of course, they never had that happen. So the idea of that was we want to get as close to the deceased person, that body, as possible during the first three days. So she comes the first day of the week, chapter 20, verse 1. She finds the stone has been rolled away. She freaks out. She runs and tells the disciples. The disciples, being John and Peter, ran to the tomb 
John beat Peter, wrote it down so everybody would know forever and ever. So by the time Mary gets to the tomb, Peter and John have left, and she's all alone. You can see that in verse 10 and 11. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. Obviously, they didn't cross paths with Mary, who was going to the tomb. She comes back. Mary stood outside by the tomb, loudly wailing. And as she wept, she stooped down and she looked into the tomb. She just stopped and just broke down. Tears have a language all their own. They don't need interpretation. And her tears flowed freely because crying is natural. God designed us to cry. You have around the orbits of your eye lacrimal glands, they are called. They secrete a serum into the eyes to lubricate the eyeball, to take away foreign bodies. They're attached to the emotional centers of the brain. If you're very, very happy, usually when you're very, very sad, they emit more serum, more water, tears, freely. It's natural. It's normal. In fact, it's unhealthy to suppress that. One doctor noted that suppressed sorrow can wreak havoc on the entire nervous system and even cited one patient of his that died of ulcerated colitis because she suppressed grief when her father had died. And yet, what do people say when somebody is crying usually? Don't cry! Why not? Or the little boys who are crying, Big boys don't cry. Really? Did their lacrimal glands fall out? So by the time the little boy gets to be age 12, he thinks that crying is not masculine. Really? It's not masculine? What do you do with Jesus in chapter 11 of John? Shortest verse in the New Testament. Jesus what? Wept. Jesus wept. The man, the Son of God, wept. And... He seems to notice all the times when we weep. Until finally in Revelation, there will be no more tears. But until then, there will be, and God takes note of it. David writes poetically in Psalm 56, You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Imagine that. It's it's as if he writes it down. He takes notice of the times that you shed tears. Every pastor knows that when there's deep distress, every counselor knows when there's grief happening, when there's loss in a person's life, the most natural thing is for tears to flow. One pastor by the name of Charles Graham Scroggie, who pastored, get this, in England, Scotland, Australia, New Zealand, Tasmania, the United States, and Canada. Oh, and by the way, eventually took over Charles Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. He's pastored a lot of people in his lifetime. He's seen a lot of people die and get buried and worked with grieving families. And he writes these words. Let grief do its work. Tramp every inch of the sorrowful way. Drink every drop of the bitter cup. To see things our loved ones have left behind will give us daily pain. The clothes they wore, the letters they wrote, the books they read, the chairs they sat in, the music they loved. But what what would we be without these reminders? 
Those who truly love will say they have found a sor- in sorrow a new kind of joy, a joy which only the brokenhearted can know. There's nothing wrong with crying. It is therapy for a broken heart. But tears can never blind a person, must never blind a person, should never blind a person from the truth, the eternal truth, heaven, all of those kinds of far-reaching truths. And sometimes they can. Brings us to our second point. Not only is crying natural, in grief, questions are helpful. Look at verse 13. Then they said to her, these are the angels now talking, the angels said, Woman, why are you weeping? Do you find that a strange question? Let's see. A woman at a graveyard crying. Is that so weird? Would you walk up to a woman at a local cemetery who's crying in front of a grave? Would you walk over and go, Hey, why are you crying? You better not. But the question is asked, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Jesus will ask the same question to her, and then a follow-up question after that. First of all, the angels talk to her. If you were to compare this with Luke and Mark's account, they don't call them angels, but men. There were men there. That's because they were angels sent from God, special messengers out of heaven, but they were allowed by God to take a human form at that time. Because when people see angels in their glory, they usually what? Freak out. So there's a couple men there, dressed in white, but they're actually angels, John describes to us. Thirty-four books of the Bible talk about angels. 17 in the Old Testament, 17 in the New Testament. They're all over the Bible. They're God's secret agents, Billy Graham calls them. They show up in the life and ministry of Jesus at very specific and important times, like His Annunciation announcement. Um, the, the announcement of his, of his conception, His birth, that was given to Joseph and Mary by an angel. At His birth, angels hovered over Bethlehem and gave that announcement. The Messiah has come. At Jesus' temptation, the angels came and ministered to Him. And here at the resurrection, they're here to announce that Jesus is alive. It seems that angels are very, very interested in our salvation. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, These are things, that is our salvation, these are things which angels desire to look into. I think we are a marvel to the angels. I think they marvel at God's love. You love them that much? You love these creatures that you would do that for them? And then I think they look at us sometimes and they go, I, I-, I don't get it. How come these people like don't really rely on God and don't turn to God and pray more and love more? and They just can't figure us out. These are things the angels desire to look into. Something else I found out, I hope you'll find it as interesting as I did. We never find angels sitting except at the resurrection. They're always like busy, right? They're doing stuff. They're working. They're active. It's at the resurrection only that we find angels 
sitting down. They're just like hanging out. They're one on this side of that bench where Jesus' body was and one at the other side of the bench. Oh, and Matthew tells us that the stone that was rolled away from that tomb, there was an angel sitting on that. Just sitting there. Waiting for people to come by. I don't know if they were eating angel food cake before they got there or or what. But Okay, so this is what my mind does. When I read about an angel on this side and an angel on that side where Jesus' body was, my mind goes back to the Old Testament to the mercy seat in the tabernacle. You following me? Remember on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, there were two angels, one on one side, one on the other side, and the wings spanned over. And God said, God said, the only place that I'm going to meet with you is on that mercy seat. Jesus Christ in the New Testament is the mercy seat. The only place God will meet with the human being is over the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that symbolically is set forth here. Look at verse 14. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. Now, please listen carefully as if you've never read this before. Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Yeah, right. Frail little Mary is going to carry the dead weight of an adult man somewhere. Let's say she could. Let's say this, this is like Brunhilde. This, this, this chick can lift big weight. Where have you laid him? Where is she going to take the body? Well, that's sort of my point. When you love somebody like Mary loved Jesus, you don't care about those impossibilities. You don't care about those questions. I'm going to deal with it. Just tell me where he is and I'll take him. 1 Corinthians 13, that great love chapter, one verse in the Phillips translation is rendered... Love knows no limits to its endurance, no end to its trust, no fading of its hope. Now think about these two questions. Question number one, how come you're crying? Question number two, who are you looking for? The angels asked the first question, Jesus asked it again and adds a question. This is Jesus' typical method. Asking a question to direct the thinking or redirect the thinking to a proper line of thinking to elevate that person eventually to a place of trust, a higher level. Why are you crying? Now we know why she's crying, because she thinks somebody's stolen the body. But asking the question, it's as if Jesus is saying, could there be, Mary, could there be another explanation for an empty tomb other then the body was stolen, like a resurrection. How come you're crying? And then the second question, who are you looking for? What kind of a Messiah are you expecting, Mary? Now, she's looking for a corpse. She does not believe Jesus has risen from the dead. And right in front of her is Jesus looking eyeball to eyeball with her. 
J.C. Ryle writes, Two-thirds of the things we fear in life never happen at all. And two-thirds of the tears we shed are thrown away and shed in vain. Here's the principle, and here's what I've discovered. When a person is in a trial, suffering, grief, despair, brokenhearted, depressed, well-placed questions will help redirect their thinking. Ask the right questions. Don't get preachy. Walk softly around a broken heart. But questions like this, if they've lost someone. What did you admire most about that person? Get them thinking those thoughts. What will you miss the most? What is the greatest lesson they taught you in their life? Or, what do you think that person wants you to do now? How would they want you to think and react? If they've lost their finances or their home, maybe a question like, okay, at this point in your life, today, what's the most valuable thing that you have? Or what's the most valuable to you at this point? Get them to evaluate and think. Just well-placed, well-timed questions can redirect the thinking and raise a person to a higher level of faith. Here's the third principle. Comprehension is gradual. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Okay, let me kind of give you a flow of events here. Because it says in verse 16, she turned and said to him. So this is what I think happened. This is as I see it. She comes to the tomb at this time. She's weeping. She's crying. She looks inside. There's these two dudes who ask her a question. How come you're crying? And she says, because they've taken away my Lord. And I don't know where they've laid him. And she's talking to them, stooping down inside the tomb. Jesus is behind her outside. How she knew Jesus was there, we're not sure. Maybe the angels went, look. Or she heard footsteps. She turns away from the tomb, turns toward Jesus, who says, how come you're crying? Who are you looking for? And she said, look, if you've taken him away, tell me where and I'll get him. And then at that point, she must have turned away from Jesus, back toward the tomb, buried her head in her hands and just started weeping again because one word was given that reeled her around. She turned around again to Jesus and she recognized him. One word. One word and all of her fears, all of her sorrow, all of her discontent was melted away. One word and she instantly recognized Jesus. And it was her name. And it was probably said in a familiar tone, the tone Jesus always used when talking to her. Maybe it was like, Mary. It was a familiar tone that brought her reeling around, recognizing that this was Jesus. We know that hearing is one of the strongest memory triggers we have. Smell and hearing are, if you hear a song or you hear a word, it takes you back to an episode. Especially your name. Because your name is the access point to your personality. It's your name. If you've ever been in a crowd where people are talking to one another in several conversations, you really don't hear what they're saying. But if somebody mentions your name, you recognize that. You hear that. 
The way Jesus said her name brought her recognition. I have a question. Why didn't she just recognize Jesus visibly? He was standing right there. That mystifies a lot of people when they read this. They go, I don't get this. How come she didn't recognize him? Well, let me give you a few reasons. Number one, she's crying, okay? Give her a break. She has tears in her eyes. She's emotionally distressed. She's all been out of shape because they think she thinks the body has been stolen. And number four, which should be really number one, the last one she expects to see standing in front of her is Jesus. She thinks he's dead. Now, she might have thought, that guy looks a lot like Jesus. Can't be him. Here's another reason. Jesus is now in his resurrected body. Very different from what she saw a couple days ago on that cross, that horrible, bloodied scene. In a resurrected body, he looked different. In 1 Corinthians 15, we are told, the body is sown in corruption, but raised in incorruption. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. Let me give you another reason. It could be that she was supernaturally kept from recognizing Jesus. That shouldn't surprise you. Luke chapter 24, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, it says they were restrained from recognizing him. They didn't know it was him. Okay, pause for a moment and consider this, because a lot of you can relate to this. Jesus is right there, and she doesn't recognize Him. How many times has Jesus been close to you, and you think, He's so far away, He like went on vacation. He left town. When Jesus promised He would never leave you or forsake you, He would be with you always to the end of the age. What has happened? Your circumstance, your sorrow has clouded your view of reality. All you can think about is your grieving and your situation. But he's still there. He hasn't moved. He hasn't moved. How did Mary recognize Jesus? Not by sight, but by voice, by sound. She saw him, didn't recognize him. She heard his voice. She recognized him. Does that bring up a principle to you? Romans 10, faith comes by hearing, not by seeing. Well, if I only saw something, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Jesus said, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd calls his sheep by name. And they recognize his voice. Mary, my teacher. The sheep has recognized the voice of the shepherd. How did she know that voice? How did she know that voice? How did she know that voice? Anybody? She heard it before. Thank you. She heard it before. She recognized that voice because she has been in the presence of Jesus long enough to recognize it. How do you recognize the voice of God? Well, you've got to spend some time with Him. The longer you spend time listening to the voice of God in Scripture as He speaks, 
you'll recognize the voice and you'll be able to tell the difference between the voice of God and the voice of your mother's tapes playing in your mind or the voice of the media or the voice of your peers or the voice of false prophets. You'll be able to go, that's the voice of Jesus. It's unmistakable. I've been in His presence. I've spent time in His Word. I hear it. The comprehension was gradual, but she eventually, eventually got it. Here's the fourth principle for those dealing with a trial like this. Commission is needful. That is, people who are brokenhearted, distressed, confused, discouraged, depressed, sometimes need a task to be given to them. Look at verse 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that He had spoken these things to her. Now why did Jesus say, don't cling to me? Literally, He is saying, stop fastening yourself to me. What do you think Mary did once she recognized Jesus? I think she grabbed Him. What would you do if somebody you thought was dead was now alive and standing in front of you? Would you go, hi. Knuckles, dude, nice to see you. You would grab that person and she probably put a death grip on Jesus like, I'm never letting you go again. Probably. She's grabbing him so tight and here's Jesus saying, stop fastening yourself to me. You've known me only in this relationship. I'm going to be around here for another 40 days. That's how long it took before he ascended to his father. In the meantime, I have something I want you to do. I want you to go to my brethren and give them this message. She was elevated to a place that Jesus gave to her of a commission, a mission that he would send her on. I want you to bring this message to them. I could do it myself, but I'm giving you this task for you to do. Oh, by the way, this is the first time Jesus ever refers to his apostles, his disciples, as my brethren. Up until now, it's been, you are my friends, you are my servants, never you are my brethren. Now he calls them his brethren. Why? Because he's died on the cross Paid the price for redemption, making this new relationship possible. We're adopted sons and daughters of God. And Hebrews 2 says, God, or Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brethren. Go tell my brethren. I think he couldn't wait to say that. My brethren. That I'm going to my God and your God, my Father and your Father. Giving a task to someone who is depressed or brokenhearted is part of restoring their hope. And it's simple as to why. Grief, sorrow, discouragement are all very consuming activities. They require lots of attention. They absorb all of your energy. And a person in those situations can become hopeless and listless and unmotivated and just so down they say, I can't do anything. I visited a girl some time back. She was on suicide watch. She tried to take her life. I was brought in to speak with her. I spoke with her for a couple hours. And at the end of it, I said, there's something I want you to do for me. 
And her first response is, I can't do anything. I said, you can do this. It's a little assignment. It's very simple. But I'm going to ask you to do something for me. And as soon as you are done with that task, I want you to call me. Here's my number personally. Call me and tell me when you've completed that. And she goes, okay, I'll, I'll try. But she did it. And she called me. She said, I did it. I said, that's excellent. You did such a great job. Now, there's something else I want you to do. And I gave her another one. And then I gave her another task. Eventually, what I got her to do is to find somebody who was in a very needy situation and tell her story to them and how she got hope. And what that did, those tasks help elevate her to a place of, I have purpose. I'm useful. I'm doing something. And it quickly helped bring her out of that funk that she had been living in for so long. So these are good principles when you encounter somebody who is being buffeted by these trials. You always bring in hope. You always redirect their thinking. It could be a question. could be a task. The scripture that comes to mind as an overarching scripture to this passage is Psalm 30 that says, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Let them emote, let them cry, but then direct their thinking from the temporal to the eternal. Little tasks, little tasks, but always with the view of now look to the horizon and see what you have to face in your eternal future as the prime motivator. Let me close with a story about a woman who taught that to her pastor. She went to the doctor. The doctor said, you have a terminal illness. You have three months to live. True story. I met the man last night who attended this funeral. She went home from the doctor. She knew she had roughly three months to live. Liver cancer was going to take her, and it did. She got her house in order, told her friends, her relatives. They went through all the stages of planning and weeping. She went to her pastor. She said, this is what I want at my funeral. I want these songs to be sung. I want these scriptures to be read. And she said, there's one final thing I want you to do at this funeral. Promise me you'll do it. I want you to place a fork in my right hand. And he gave her one of those looks like, I really want to ask you, but I don't, I don't know if I should. And she just had that look like, I don't get this. So she smiled and she said, I, I know you, what you're thinking. Here's why I want you to do this. All through my life, whenever I've gone to church, potlucks or socials, wherever there's dinner, they serve the meal, inevitably someone will say after you eat the meal, hold on to your fork, which means they're going to serve up dessert. The good stuff's coming, you know, the chocolate cake and the apple pie. Hold on to your fork. So, Pastor, I want you to promise me you'll place a fork in my right hand and I want the casket open and I want people filing by my casket before you give the message. And they're going to look in the casket and see a fork and they're going to think, why is there a fork in her hand? And they're going to go back to their seats and then I want you to preach the message and you tell them this, the best is yet to come. She's holding, hold on to your fork because the best is yet to come. Here's a woman who lived with all the trials she lived with, knowing with fork in hand, the best is yet to come. Now you think about that when you go to lunch today and pick up your fork 
And you never forget as you grab that fork, hold on to your fork. The best is yet to come. Father, we know this to be true. We cannot turn to a page in Scripture without getting that brought to our attention, especially in the Gospels with Jesus, who was always thinking of not just that moment, but what that moment means in the scheme of all moments and into eternity itself. And we consider how Jesus handled this woman who was so brokenhearted. So many tears had been shed in that last 24-hour period by this woman. And Jesus saw that. And though these tears were natural, questions were asked to elevate the way she processed her life and her events. And then she recognized Jesus. There was light at the end of the tunnel. But a task was given that helped her feel that she was important, that she lived with purpose, that she had an eternal job to do, thus getting her eyes fixed on something more important than what she had been dealing with. All very, very practical. And help us as your ambassadors to walk softly around a broken heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.